This is Swampside Chats. A podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This episode, we are once again in the enemy camp on a forced march. Our guide is returning guest Tyler from New Zealand, and the piece in question is The Shadow by Lionel Terry. Tyler was saying that there's nothing interesting in New Zealand. And I was saying that I beg to differ because right now, I think they're done actually filming, but they've been filming, I think, throughout COVID, uh, all like four, like three or four sequels to Avatar. Uh, and they're, like, they're basically filming all three of them at once. James Cameron constructed like an entire city around the production of it, like an entire small town. And they just had like a billion COVID tests and just tested everybody constantly. Yeah, through, through, the, through his like mastery of logistics, was able to basically maintain production throughout the pandemic. And I think there's going to be like three or three or four more of those movies coming out soon, which I, for one, am excited for, you know, You're because the only person I know that feels that way. Well, here's the thing, though, like the fact that he's doing such an insane amount of them makes me think he actually has like a story to tell and a plan, because if it was just a cash in. You would just do one. Right. But the fact that he's doing like three or four means he's really he's really fucking going for something. And I also actually heard him not too long ago. I was like, this was probably a while ago now, but he was on Marianne Williamson's podcast. Y'all remember Marianne Williamson? Yes, I remember. Yeah, she has a podcast. She's a huge, like, James. She's been a long time, like, James Cameron dick rider. She's been, like, she, at one point, I think she said, like, everyone in the world needs to see Avatar, like, <laughs> because it's, like, important. So, <laughs> and, yeah, it's, so it's, like, the West Wing is to liberals, Avatar is to Marianne Williamson. Yeah, well, and. She so she had him on the show and she was talking about like why like she like spiritually in terms of like the eco consciousness and all this stuff about it, it was so important. Think about like James Cameron too as like every time he goes for something, people say he's an idiot and it's not gonna work. Like when he was filming Titanic, you know, he was shooting he built like a reconstruction of the fucking boat. He had it like in a on a soundstage, like submerged in water. Everybody said he was fucking crazy. And then, you know, everyone's like, This is Heaven's Gate all over again, you know? And then it went on to like you know win the like make a jillion dollars and win every award. So I feel like I feel like it's going to be something. I could be wrong. Don't say this is Heaven's Gate all over again to me, Jake. It just it reminds me of the book. Uh, what is it? It's just it's this book by someone that was in a Marxist party. And she compares it to Heaven's Gate. Oh yeah, which, it was, which one? Uh, which one was it? This is a Bounded Choice by Jean Jalilac. Uh, her name isn't the band. Anyway, um, she was, like, in the Democratic Workers' Party in San Francisco. She's, like, a Marxist feminist cult under um, Maureen Dixon, I think her name was. <clears throat> she wrote, like, this Maoist feminist critique of radical feminism that people were circulating. And someone was like, hey, did you know this was written by a cult leader? <laughs> there, was, there was an episode of uh, Dangerous Minds, like, a really trash, like, TV show about cults those mate is, you know. is that the one with uh greg from dharma and greg i, I he's a cop i think <laughs> i think so okay because i think that's what you said when you saw this i i had it hosted uh 
it's it's kind of great. It's like this, you know, someone you know, being sucked into a communist cult, uh, dramatized, and uh, but there's a happy ending because the judge uh, divides the assets of the party between all the workers. So, well, and for the record, I was referring to a different Heaven's Gate. Um, that was the, Heaven's Gate was the movie that killed that it didn't even actually lose that much money, but like it. It was the it was the excuse Hollywood used to like stop making auteur big budget movies. I legit don't even know what this movie is. Okay, so you remember the Deer Hunter? You ever see the Deer Hunter? I've heard of it. Okay, so this was Heaven's Gate was the movie the Deer Hunter <laughs> guy did after the Deer Hunter, and like he spent a t- bunch of money and built like a whole village, and you know it was like a western, and then it, it kind of bombed. But you know compared to like a lot of modern like modern blockbusters they didn't spend that much money but there was like every for like a year in like the hollywood trade papers every story was like this was a piece of shit you know these auteurs have gone too far they have to rein him we have to rein him in every movie needs to be jaws from now on you know or star wars didn't that didn't that destroy united artists as well Wasn't it like did a yes film united artists made yeah but anyway so new zealand uh we have our correspondent from new zealand <laughs> Uh, Tyler, thanks for coming back. It's been a minute. Um, we you have for us uh, an in the enemy camp. Uh, this was very much in the enemy camp. Uh, I feel like I'm sitting at a camp, uh, reading it, uh, talking to somebody who is either um, on some on some kind of like psychedelics or is having some kind of psychotic break. But before we get to that, I kind of want to check out because like I said we haven't talked in a while. I kind of want I kind of want to check in um, because New Zealand has sort of become famous or infamous as being probably in the English speaking world the most zero COVID country, um, and some people you know portray it as you know like this is the this is the thing everybody should have been doing. Others are like it's a special case because uh, it's an island, and then other people are still like this. It's you know it's George Orwell's nineteen eighty four there. I just got to talk about where things are at, what your experience has been, you know, just experientially being in that place. And I don't know what you, what, what's your take on all that? Yeah. Was it in fact, 1984 there? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm currently reporting from a re-education camp in Starland, Ardern's, <laughs> yeah. um, 1984, New Zealand. No, it's the, the, the lockdowns. I know a few people who are like, Damn, I missed lockdown. I didn't have to work, and I got paid. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh. So no one ever tells you that part. At least they never told me. You got paid during your lockdowns. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah, was well, technically, technically, the business that you were employed by got paid, and they had to okay. pay you. Okay. All right. So. Um. So you got your regular. Your, what you would have normally worked um, worth of wages, which was cool for me because I was working on really low hours, but I got paid as if I were working full time. Wait, hold on a second. Like, that's insane to me. Like, you could ne- here's the th- part of this is just the brokenness of institutions because there's no way you could do that in America. Like, if you gave all the money to the employers in America, like 10% of it would have got to the employees. <laughs> like, there's no yeah, way. I- a lot of it is unaccounted for. Oh, okay. Um, but people did wind up getting paid, um, which I think is the difference between here and the U.S. is that people did yeah. get some money in the end. Um, 
and businesses just figured out other sneaky ways like inflating how many employees they had and stuff like that okay there was a lot of that here too with like ppe loans and shit but yeah okay um but go on yeah just over the last month and a half i'd say six seven weeks um the plan has kind of switched by by stages to just let it rip don't we're we're not in a not in a lockdown at present um the vaccine mandates that were brought in last year have been removed sans a handful of private companies that have their own internal vaccine mandates um but most of those have gone now as well we've gone from zero deaths maybe one every other day in around up to about early march to a dozen or more deaths a day for the last month or so um so we've gone from a little under 50 deaths to i see today's numbers are 600 over the last six weeks the caseload is still fairly high i think it was about 10,000 today and it's been vacillating between about eight to fifteen thousand over the last few weeks um it's very slowly going down but it's more plateauing than you know nose diving and um the way people are treated for covid is if they don't require hospital care they're basically just required to stay at home until they're better and people living with them are required to isolate for seven days but even if the person i i might have this a little bit wrong but i'm pretty sure even if the original person hasn't um being cleared yet after those seven days you're free to go and mill about again so it's gone to a much more casual um way of dealing with it which unsurprisingly has led to a much higher death rate i mean at some level it's tough because you know it to strangle this thing in the cradle basically everybody would have had to act it early and aggressively you know in the united states and britain to a certain extent we're just like no fuck that like at this point, it's endemic, so it's, you know, the, uh, maintaining zero COVID is going to get more and more difficult, like, the longer this thing just circulates around the planet, you know? Like, it seems like the only thing you can do is vaccinate hard and, you know, hope for the best. I mean, I mean, I know there's a, there is, like, the hard technological determinist solution where there are more uh, mitigating treatments that are being developed that seem to be pretty effective, um, like, such of different pills you can take that will blunt the worst effects of it, but... They have to ramp up production on that stuff, but you know, it's 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 crazy. In the United States, I think we're past like a million people who died from this or whatever, um, and it's essentially at this point become just another thing that's normalized as kind of the cost of living here, uh, similar to you know automobile deaths or uh, you know you you name it the, the number of people who die because they don't get ad- have ad- adequate access to healthcare because our system is broken, you know. The roadkill of civilization. Like, you know, this is, you know, this is just the cost of doing business. It's, you know, it, it has seemed that the Omicron variant, the, the really, like, one of the worst side effects of it is, that first of all, that it broke into populations that had been, like, previously sheltered by the, the small kind of transmission radius. And then secondly, of course, um, that it's very, like, spreadability would inspire basically people to give up all the measures that they had been trying before. Um, cause yeah, like now almost, am, am I wrong in saying this, that like almost everyone now, at least in a, in America that I, I can see 
Jake and Nina, so it might be a bubble thing, is now behaving, uh, but I don't think it is, because I... This, I've seen this in a number of places, and it's not just people I know. People just have dropped all of the moralism about, like, trying to, like, you know, prevent the spread of this. And outside of, like, a few small businesses or, like, hospitals around here, like, people don't wear masks anymore. Um, it's, it, like, the shit is over over here in Phoenix. What I've kind of observed, I feel like I've been in a unique position to observe this because i'm in a basically a blue county in a red state essentially at this point you could you could almost break it down completely by who voted for biden who voted for trump like by electoral district how much masking is was was adopted the only outlier i could see that was different was um and i didn't i'm not bringing any macroeconomic data to this this is purely anecdotal but what i observed was that here like especially working class black communities were much slower to adopt, but they've held on to masking much longer than like other groups, probably because uh, it seemed to hit them harder than others for whatever reason. But yeah, it does really seem to break down along culture war lines in a way that's pretty pretty neat. Anyway, um, I just, I was I was I was just curious because I know like I certainly always put forward like New Zealand is kind of like a potentially you know so like good model or whatever and i think that it's for that reason it sort of became like this boogeyman amongst people it seems like the lockdowns tended to be pretty effective wherever they did it it's just that you know it, the horse got too far out of the barn everywhere else and now it's you know it's circulating the globe yeah that's that's pretty close to my approximation i think of something closer to what new zealand or or other countries like singapore as an example um closer to what they did had been adopted on mass fairly early then i think covid could have been another great scare like ebola well mm-hmm. ebola every five to ten years yeah um but at this point um it would be very difficult to go mm-hmm. for no covid um not pointless but it, it would be way way more difficult and it's probably too deeply enmeshed in the community to do it in new zealand at this point well, and it seems like I, another fucked up thing that happened was that there was this kind of mission creep where it, he, here, like the state's not going to do anything. It, it's it's like solving global warming and all these other structural issues. It's your personal responsibility uh, by being a good person for you to do things to mitigate the harm that's happening. Right. And so as a result of that, um, you get some people who are basically still fighting like the non covid fight. Even even beyond the point that it's maybe completely rational to do so, um, when in fact, like the point of interventions and even you know authoritarian measures like lockdowns, even in China, like locking people in their houses, was to strangle this thing in the cradle, and that shit's really only effective if you catch it early and get ahead of the virus. <laughs> you know, like uh, still like the the amount of mitigation that you can do at this point. Um, the only thing, the only reason I see now is like. I don't know. People make fun of it online, but I do think there is something to like long COVID shit. And I do think it is kind of potential, potentially this generation's lead poisoning. Like, I feel like everybody has gotten stupider in the last two years, including me. Um, I mean, I can think of a sociological reason for that. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's on a basic, you know, critical theory, finding ways of looking at conclusions. Funny. Like, hmm. Yeah. But, Man, true uh, crime 
true crime fans are going to be pretty fucking happy if it turns out that this is this generation's lead poisoning, given that's put forward as one of the reasons for the serial oh, killer God. boom. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, the podcast industry is about to eat big. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Buy big stakes in podcasts. Yeah. I mean, yeah. honestly, like, if the, if this Web3 shit works out, they will be selling, like, podcast futures. Pretty soon. Okay. No, anyway. it, it, no they totally will. This will be like an anarchist fringe model. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, in the enemy camp, you brought us this piece by a fellow uh, named Lionel Terry. The The piece is called The Shadow. It's from 1904. Um, it's an interesting piece. <laughs> it it uh, it's quite prescient in the literature that it you know anticipates, wouldn't you say? Yeah, in more ways than one. But I'll well, get into the biography side of that in a bit. I mean, it's the piece is in a way I would say both ahead of its time and also way way behind, way way too late behind <laughs> its time. Um, well, but, behind its time is is kind of is a bit prime. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm gonna. I'll. 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 Be, I'll do the charitable reading on this and see how I can um, take what this yeah. is doing and integrate it to the left. <laughs> yeah. Yes. See if you can like get the ex Bernie Bros on this, so yeah. that they have something to believe in, so they don't all turn religious or, yeah, or, you know, get completely blackpilled. But make sure to kick up the anti-Semitism though, like because like you don't want you know Bernie Bros like we need Bernie Bros to exist to to break. Then you know to break democratic voters back into the party during the next election cycle. I was gonna say I was gonna say something about Corbyn, but I feel like you could actually probably get J.K. Rowling types to like this if you if you just pitched it the right way. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, this is this is fucking post left gold, you guys. We're about so, to be rich. So Tyler, I think you said you looked at a biography of this guy. Can you give us a little bit of background on 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 you know this dude and what 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 the hell this is? Yeah, so I own a copy of The Making of a Madman, which I think is the only biography of this guy. Um it's fairly rare these days, but I happen to live in the city where the biographer lived, so I found it secondhand. Um, Interesting. Wait, is this a true crime podcast now? That we are officially a true crime podcast because uh, like Lionel Terry com- committed a, a hor- horrific xenophobic murder against a Chinese immigrant. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've done. Or did he? In this sixteen-part series, we're going to get to the truth of what happened here. <laughs> okay, go on. Um, yeah, I've got some like the basic biographical info on him. Um, he was born into a fairly wealthy business family in Kent. Um, he was privately educated. He enlisted in the Royal Artillery at Woolwich when he was 19 in 1892 and was discharged because his daddy paid for him to get out in 1895. Um, but after he leaves the military, his life gets super interesting. Um, he went to South Africa first, where he participated in the Jameson Raid and fought in the Second Matabale War. Um, which was the failed attempt to overthrow the Transvaal Republic by um, Britain-friendly rich backers. And as a result, he actually met both Cecil Rhodes and Paul Kruger. And Paul Kruger, especially the president of the Transvaal Republic, he had this lifelong admiration for 
ever since, um, which for his later actions makes a lot of sense. Um, he spent some time touring Europe. He went to the Caribbean where he climbed Mount Pele and Martinique, and he explored uncharted areas of Dominica. He actually is responsible, supposedly, for some of the first maps of certain parts of Dominica. Um, wow. Yeah. He toured the U.S., um, visited yes. a great many states, went to Hawaii. Um, this would have been around 1897, 98, 99. Um, so I think it might be just before Hawaii was annexed. Um, he claims he did so to study the island's multiracial society, which he didn't come out with a good opinion of in the end. Huh. Um, Wonder why. From there, and this is why I... Um, suggested this reading he traveled to british columbia and canada where he became um the secretary of the miners protection union and worked as a trade union organizer uh and led an anti-chinese kind of agitation campaign against the provisional governor on behalf of white miners um, is that why he calls it chinese columbia yes yes it is that really makes sense of that yeah. Um, from there, he made his way to Australia, where he was a gold miner for a little bit, um, did some prospecting, and went to New Zealand in 1901. So he was only in New Zealand for a few years when he committed his murder. Um, in New Zealand, he mostly worked for the um, Land and Surveying Department. And in 1904, after publishing The Shadow, he toured the length of the North Island on foot, giving lectures in every town he visited on the shadow before he finally wound up in Wellington where he lived until he committed his murder. Um, he apparently got some very big crowds at his lectures, which I think says the most about New Zealand society more so than his skill as a lecturer. I mean, this reads like a speech. You know, it's like it is very theatrical in the way that he's written. I also have to wonder, like, if that actually is the first person this dude killed, you know, because you got you a guy here is moving around an awful lot. You know what I mean? And moving through some places that are, you know, not super settled. You know, I feel like this guy probably had more than one opportunity to take somebody out, you know, and then because, you know, back then you got over county lines. You were good. If he did, there's no record of it. Um, right. at least as far as Frank Todd could find. I mean, he almost certainly killed someone when he was in the Jameson raid. That was part of a war. Right, and right, he right. And as a military man. Right, but, th but this was just like, so the person he killed, December 24th, 1905, he shot someone named Joe or Joe Kam Young, a Chinese immigrant in Wellington, and who, you know, sustained the injuries from being shot and then died later. Um, and so Young was an elderly, like, gold prospector who had a pronounced limp. And so he, like, shot, like, he very publicly shot, like, an elderly immigrant. Like, it doesn't, you know, this isn't, like, Jason Bourne or something. It's a pretty, like, cowardly act. Looking at this piece, is it's kind of your classic, it's your classic uh, sort of workerist, racist right. uh, piece of invective. Um, you know, like the, the basic premise is that of, you know, race being a natural thing um, that has to basically be enforced as part of like this um, nationalistic project 
that is supposed to like benefit the working class somehow, right? And keep like, the he, race pure. Keep the race pure. Yeah, he basically he 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 says all of this out loud. Yeah, class interest means the interest of the race. Well, the thing that kind of notes him apart on that front is his really weird position on the British Empire, which um, he essentially claims is a de facto workers' republic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that if, is well. If it wasn't for all the Jews, if it wasn't for all the Jews, it totally would be. It's just that all the Jews, you know, you see, there's there's a Jew in charge of things, and so that guy. This is the earliest I think I've seen. Well, I don't know if it's the earliest I've seen this argument, but like in uh in German or something, like I, I don't normally see stuff like this. Maybe like Wagner. Yeah, but like, this predates the English translation of the protocols by about 15 years, as far as I can tell. So, so that's what I'm thinking. Like, it's before, a, like, the kind of Anglo anti-Semitism that I'm accustomed to that's I mean, derivative maybe, of protocols. Maybe he helped write it, you know? You know maybe, <laughs> maybe he was in the early writing writer's room, like, breaking He's the story. He's in the writer's room. Yeah. He's a secret czarist plant. Yeah. Yeah. Which would fit very well, because there were multiple russian scares not long before he arrived in new zealand interesting yeah right yeah, um, we're trying to beat we're trying to beef this story up so there's a russian plot to take over the government <laughs> no, no 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 let's spice it let's get it let's spice it up a bit what if it's a jewish plot hmm jewish plot you know what? i like the way that sounds all right all right we'll run it from take it from the top to give you a sense of this guy's writing i'm just going to read a few paragraphs here I declare that the government of the British Empire is Jew-ridden and corrupt. I declare that certain members of the House of Rothschild are and have been for many years past the private advisors of the British cabinet and that the De Beers diamond mines robbery, the Jameson filibustering expedition, the Boer War, and the now pending importation of Chinese labor into South Africa are all attributable to the secret instigation of the Rothschilds, who are deeply interested in South African mining and land securities. In other words, the British Empire, at, as at present conducted, may be compared to a Jabez Balfour or a Whitaker Wright company on a colossal scale. The object of the company is to acquire gold. The methods adopted by the company include fraud, robbery, and murder. The power of the company is unlimited. Its chief forces include the British Army, the British Navy, and the British Parliament, all of which, being supported and paid by the laboring classes, supply their services free of cost to the company. Right? Like, this is... This is, like, the narration to, like, Breitbart-style documentary filmmaking, like, before its time. You know what I mean? Yeah, but this is, like, this is, like... This is fascism before fascism. Like, yeah. this... You know, before, like, the currents that actually kind of catch spark turn into the, the, the fascist movements that we're familiar with and they're like Anglophone sympathizers. Like this is, it's, was this like, I want, I have to wonder how influential this was. Like, yeah, this is the, this is the velvet underground of Hitler. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like not a lot of people read it, but everyone who did read it became a Hitler, you know? Yeah. So the thing with that is, I mean, no one, for a long time, long, long time, no one outside of New Zealand and Australia would have had access to this piece, let alone read it. But in more recent years, mostly as a result of a New Zealand guy named Kerry Bolton, this piece and Lionel Terry's life has been making a renaissance in American 
far-right circles. Um, okay. So which is like, one of the reasons why I brought it up. And, you, and see the, you, see this dank, you see this dank Kiwi racism? It's just more sophisticated than our American racism. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, Kerry Bolton wrote, I think he might either have written or is writing a book about Lionel Terry, but he wrote a quite extensive essay for Countercurrents Publishing, with whom Terry has published a number of books. And Countercurrents, I think, might have come up in a Vaughn episode at some point, but Countercurrents is responsible for a lot of the reprints of um, Julia Savola and uh, oh, Savitri nice. Devi. You know, countercurrents, uh, okay. you know, that sounds sounds really countercultural, like against the grain, you know? Yeah. Against yeah, the modern Kerry, world. Kerry Bolton's <laughs> um, most recent works have been, he edited a collection of uh, Francis Parker Yoki's or Yoki's works. Um, he was one of those post-war fascists that was kind of soft pro-Soviet Union in the great power conflict. So this stuff is circulating again, a hundred plus years later. And I also kind of look at this as the earliest ancestor of the kind of manifesto shooter that unfortunately mm, graced right. New Zealand and is a bit more common in the States. Oof, yeah. No, yeah, like be me, be honest, uh, working English, English class, working subject, uh, have your job taken by Chinamen you know, uh, travel the world and, you know, like, it, it, yeah, it, it could just be right. If, if he was around now though, he'd probably just be like, you know, like in a basement, like writing green text posts, you know, and like, uh, yeah, essentially just feeling bad, like living up, he would, he would basically be traveling a virtual existence and not like this sort of trampish, like crossing continents and, you know, mining and right. fighting wars and shit. Well, he was six foot five. So I don't think he'd be welcomed in those circles. He's too tall and Chad. <laughs> yeah was he six foot five is there good evidence of that or is that just what he said he was yeah no no i've was got photos of, I've, I've got photos of him wow. he, he was a tall dude now i will say there is something that's there is something about this thing that is kind of weird to me and that i think makes him less modern i mean okay it's so like all of these guys he appeal he has this concept in his head that there is this like harmonious social order that's being disrupted by these corrupt elements. We just give it the corrupt elements. It's all going to be fine, right? And that he just has to appeal to this harmonious social order that's still there, the silent majority or whatever, to, like, expel the Jew or the Chinaman or whatever, and then it's all going to be good. But the problem is, like, it it's kind of addressed to, like, a popular audience, but it's mostly – because, like, there's, like, three sections of this thing, right? There's the first section where he does his whole, like, proto, you know, Elders of Zion conspiracy. Like, this is – you know, it's uh, – the capital is mammon and the, everybody's worshiping mammon and we, you know, it's leading to like race mixing and all these other, all this other bad, you know, shit. The second section is like this weird poem about like set in the future <laughs> about like harkening back to like this golden age of like England. And then the third part is like this weird letter to the king. Oh, and yeah, yeah, I think yeah. what this reminds me of like, like deep reactionaries is that it, it, it's basically appealing for a return to like, uh, bloodline aristocracies, like uh, you know, putting uh, dynastic politics in command of the world again, and restoring idealized, like harmonious, like planter society, feudalistic golden age uh, by force. But it's like, I'm sorry, like I can understand De Maistre like making that argument in the face of the French Revolution, but like 100, 200 years later, like 
I'm sorry, like that ship is sailed. Like the the aristocracy are all like making money off of this. Like they're all right. like they're like they're all caked up as a result of the British this empire that's like founded on like mercantilism and capitalism. Like how like you have to be a crazy person to think you could put the genie back in that bottle or just a complete fucking idiot. Or just right, a complete fucking idiot. And I think that's the important part of that disjunction there, Jake. In saying that, I think an important thing to note is that in the opening section when he's laying out his positions kind of directly as opposed to doing it in a with poetic flowery <laughs> yeah well, we should we should read he, some he bars is versatile he is versatile yeah. you know he's, yeah. he he can define his terms and then he can bust a rhyme he he's a man but, of letters i am interested there's this one paragraph i'll read from it now Take away her rulers, princes, and governors, her bishops, priests, and deacons, her lawyers, politicians, and capitalists, and she would still remain the British Empire. More so, in fact, because she would then be more representative of the British race and of its interests. So he has this like address to the king. When he lays out exactly what he thinks, it is distinctly modern because he includes the princes, the rulers, the aristocrats, in that list of things that doesn't actually represent the British race at all. He is very clear that it's only a modern white proletariat that is capable embodying the British empire and is capable of like doing things on the world stage, which is one of those things where that's where I think he's really not perceptive, but he is ahead of his time. He's seeing arguments that were about to be very influential in about 20 years Mm-hmm. Um, but he's seeing them a couple decades early, and he's he's making the argument a couple decades early. I think, unfortunately for him, the circumstances in which he made those arguments kind of rendered it irrelevant, which was why this was a popular book, and he was a popular guy, but no one took his position seriously, um, because the sheer scale of anti-Chinese legislation and agitation that had taken place in the in the preceding two decades meant that there were very few Chinese people actually living in New Zealand at the time. And it was extraordinarily difficult for anyone, not just Chinese, but a number of other peoples to arrive in New Zealand at all. Yeah, that is that is the other big component of this. I mean, well, first of all, I do love I, I just want to say real quick that I love that paragraph because it's like, yeah, take away her rulers or princes or governors or bishops or priests. And it's still the British Empire. Yeah. Also, take away the boats, the, the flag, uh, take away the word <laughs> British Empire. Like you take away all that shit. It's not the British Empire. It's, you know, it's it, it, like like the idea that like you could have like some kind of empire without just of like working class people like doing what? You know what I mean? But anyway. The, the the other big component of this is like the anti Chinese sentiment, um, like that is like his other big fixation. Like, um, he he re- go, he goes to the anti Semitism stuff as this uh, the, as the center point of his conspiracy at like a macro level in terms of like who's who's uh, whispering in the good king's ear, or, like who's who's ruined like the central government. But the the Chinese stuff uh, basically connects to. Uh, you know, classic anxiety about immigration and a flooded job market, but also obviously like this deeper, like it connects to his deeper sense of like race science and like the need to preserve racial purity as like a natural imperative. And to segregate um, and ro- root out, you know, mixing. Right. Uh, you know, which, you know, robs the, you know, Britons of their motherland. Like 
Yeah, the, like beyond the um, sort of, I don't know, pathological purity meme here, he is, what do I want to say? Because it's kind of insane. But yeah, considering that he has a modern form of like, you know, race-based citizen, like, and it's, I don't know, like, I've never seen it in, in such like modern white supremacist form this early on is basically the thing that's tripping me up about it. Yeah, which is why I think it's not a good piece. And his his theories are, you know, when you tease them out, inherent inherently incoherent. Well, they're insane. Like, like yeah, right. No, yeah, he's he, not. He he, do, he do, doesn't understand that you know, harsh hierarchy towards an out group is also tied to harsh exploitation towards an in group. Like <laughs> right, like you know, he th- he's like. It must be the Jew making, you know, the, the white capitalist exploit their own. Like, yeah. it's, it's very, very, you know, his, his, his content we're saying is very naive. But with, with fascists, you always have to wonder what if they believe anything they're saying and aren't just spinning a tale for instrumental value. Because that's the real insight of fascists. I, th- I think he's a true believer. And I say that because the biography of his life for the remaining 50 years because he just hands himself in the next day. He voluntarily gives himself in um, after he committed the murder. The next 50 years of his life are spent bouncing between asylums, mostly in Seacliff Asylum, which is not far from where I live. Oh, very nice. The fact that he volunteers to give himself in, not only that, but he tries to get the death penalty. He goes out of his way to argue in court that if they can't prove that he is insane, which he calls a half measure, then he deserves the death penalty because that's because that's what the letter of the law is. And that, you know, <laughs> if his theories are wrong, then they should have him hung. And he is initially sentenced to death, but has it commuted to life in prison. And his sanity eventually does dissolve. But the fact that he is such a personally impressive figure in his antics before he arrives to New Zealand and the fact that he was just so ready to die makes him, I think, a dangerous, dangerously seductive figure and one that kind of stands head and shoulders above a lot of the other mass shooters that kind of put out their manifesto and then go on a spree and then kind of mug at the camera and be like, yeah, right. Yeah, they're usually just a jokerified loser. And that's why I think this piece is important to kind of like have in the daylight because it is circulating among the far right outside of New Zealand. He is the kind of like I could just picture him being added to the pantheon, so to speak, so very easily just because it's so easy. It would be so easy for some like jokerified loser to look up to him mm-hmm. because he's this like wandering troubadour who traveled all over the world and did a bunch of like kind of interesting cool shit and then became a racist or was always racist and did interesting cool shit besides it i just see so easily people being kind of like seduced by this shit there's also this last section where it's like to the king an exhortation yeah this is this is just like a big orchestral section that doesn't go anywhere i'm trying to square this with his whole you know like the working people are the real british empire thing with with this last section that, again, like, kind of reminds me of, like, the Maestro or whatever, where it's like, 
you know, rise up, rise up, O King, like purge that country, drive the alien from thy shores. I mean, okay, like, I don't know. Is, is this in earnest or is he just like trying to basically playing this up for the crowd or what is he trying to do here? I mean, my personal take on that last section is that it's a little bit of his more religious leanings peeking through and he's kind of doing this exhortation to the king almost more as a, re- a figure like a religious figure mm. than as a, a a political or um yeah more as a political as a political figure um which you know it's worth keeping in mind that the british monarch is the head of the church of england so they are like an inherently religious figure as well um that's kind of what i took from it and later in life while he was living in the asylum and his sanity did start to slip he would he kept writing to people and he kept writing poetry there's a ton of poetry at the local archive here by him um it sails into just being purely religious mania after a while Hmm. um so i think that's a little bit of that slipping through i personally think that yeah, that the exhortation to the king is kind of almost exhortation to the king as the religious figurehead of the British people more so than as the political figurehead of the British people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that does kind of make sense of it. Yeah, well, was, was, otherwise was Victoria... it, it brings you into this like Machiavelli question. Is he like, you know, is, you know, is he fundamentally like for popular government or is he actually just like saying that shit and then you know saying what he really thinks to the monarch or is he buttering up the monarch because most people have to do that a lot of humanists had to do that and whatever this guy is you know because he's not part of that category well it's also worth keeping in mind that his audience was um people in new zealand like new zealand even then it was monarchist but didn't really have much of a connection to the monarch so Mm. I think that that was also partially written just to kind of like butter up people's conservative leanings as well. So wait, he's he's wailing about Britain in New Zealand? Yeah, at the time, right. New Zealand was a lot more, it still had that idea of New Zealand being um, the Britain of the South Seas, which was kind of this idea that a lot of settlers had and was big in kind of early national identity. It was this idea that... Um, New Zealand was going to be this parallel Britain on the exact other side of the earth where it could be made anew in a new land. Um, So like monarchist sympathy was very high uh, and you could easily appeal to people's more conservative nature by kind of doing this appeal to the king thing. I mean, he may also just have been incoherent because I think judging by his later life, he was sane enough that that he should have been put to death as and so as much as I'm against the death penalty. There were cracks fairly early on, I think. Oh yeah. I see. Yeah. So this guy comes from like this workerist background. I mean, it doesn't sound like he comes from like a worker's background, but he was basically worked as a working class guy and as an organizer at one point. Um especially agitating, as you said, um in British Columbia on the question of uh immigrant Chinese laborers. Should we talk a little bit about kind of the problem of how working classes like stand with relation to immigration because at the base there is kind of a rational aspect of you know there is a market in labor 
as we've especially witnessed, you know, material recently in the, if the market gets flooded, you know, that, that drive that generally will drive down wages. So there is economistically a certain rational concern there, but what tends to happen is links up with nationalism. Well, first of all, with racism in the sense that, you know, it's like these people are, we have to, you know, project these outgroups as being bad in some way that's extra to just people wanting to have a job. But also it, it, it ties into nationalism that it is, it is the project of this nation state uh, to redistribute some benefit to us in order for us to have any investment in it whatsoever, right? Like as citizens or as political actors who contribute to it. I guess the question is always like counteracting this stuff on some level requires you to address like the the materialistic economistic concern while also dispelling all of this other, you know, sort of like race, racial and nationalistic elements. I mean, yeah, the, the, the problem is a lot of the old labor radicals like that thought that, you know, more like craft like union elements or just on the more like anarchist or like dem- sort of radical democratic like labor leaders like like or council communists, for instance, like an- anarcho syndicalists. They all have these like broader visions of unionism. The reason being is to try to manifest a broader version of class interests. As opposed to these more constrained versions of unionism, like, you know, craft unionism or stuff that's organized by like a specific type of labor rather than throughout an industry. Stuff that's especially around like uh, scarcer labors or stuff like that. Stuff that might already have a market advantage. Maybe like the, I don't know, good equilibrium, the Kantian equilibrium, like for labor movements or whatever would be to share that advantage you know like for if you if you have rarer skills that you use your leverage to help everyone get paid a better wage because you're part of let's say an industrial union you're part of some kind of broader type of union uh and it represents like this broader notion of class interest but when you get locked into the kind of labor unions labor movements and organizations that actually survive in the 20th century, for the most part, their class interests are totally nationally locked. And as Jake was saying, their rationality in every model I've seen is bound towards wanting to constrain the supply of laborers just as an economic, purely as an economic variable, like let alone any other kind of social instability from, you know, mixing cultures, whatever. That was the idea of originally creating like an international was to lay the groundwork for there to be a conceptualization of some kind of political space beyond national frameworks, right? Because literally the only, the only space that politics could, could then, and even to a certain extent now, could still exist within was a national context. Like that's how societies are organized. And so how do you break out of that framework? I mean, that's, and that's still the, the challenge to this day is – how do you get people to conceptualize things beyond that? I think on some level, part of the deep-seated, uh, I think at least popular aversion to any kind of like serious confrontation with Russia, I think sp- in the United States, I think speaks to some aspect of people realizing that we all kind of have to exist on this planet together in some way, which I think there's like a germ of an idea there, I think. But there is no mechanism still for people 
to conceptual because like I mean what is there? There's the United Nations. Like pretty much every major international institution is dominated by uh, American veto power and is essentially an extension of you know like American like global hegemony, right? Yeah. Outside the World Bank, which is you know a fair amount of power, the UN has no power. Like yeah. it's all World Bank, and so it means it's not really relevant to this kind of geopolitics at all, right? In the IR calculus, they're like you know not represented. Right. Yeah, and and that's always like the main problem. I mean, the the best, the only thing I could think of is to essentially point out that the hyper exploitation migrant labor is predicated on their very status as illegal, but that still doesn't clear like the basic fact of the more people you have somewhere, you know, you have more people con- con- competing for scarcer resources and you know the same jobs because you know job growth can only increase by so much due to just the constraints of value generation. So it still doesn't necessarily clear that, but I don't know. There's, there's no easy answers there. Uh, I know at least for sure, at the very least, I think we, we for the most part, except for maybe, you know, like people who are as insane as the, like you really have to be like this nuts or this, uh, you know, like insanely backwards and alienated to believe like race, racism at this level in like 2022. Like oh, there's a lot of like Archie Bunker like style bigots still kicking around. But I don't think there's a lot of people who are like, you know, uh, the, the holy like uh, proper bloodlines need to be maintained. Blah 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 blah. Yeah, it's a hard it's a hard sell these days. Yeah, once yeah. you get out of like, once you get out of um, the kind of closed circuit of forums and chan boards and whatever else, and you actually try and bring this stuff to the real world, even just bring this stuff to like more popular forums for communication on the internet it quickly becomes you know pretty obvious how hard a sell it is to try and make that stuff work these days no no you you just shift it to culture you just kick it to culture and you can say Mm -hmm. just about every all the same things and just move the locus of like you know inherent essence right like that's it like well i mean a lot of the discourse is very similar I mean, a lot of the game now is, like, try and find, like, the most, I don't know, like, maybe non-assimilated aspect of, like, critical or progressive theory that exists. Like, the most like, non-assimilated maybe social sociological critiques that, like, the left maybe has and then point to it, like, ahead of time and go, see how crazy these people are, you know? And then, and then you can, like, through the back door, like, smuggle in, like, okay, uh, actually, you know... W- Pick, you know, pick whatever, pick pick whatever like reactionary position or issue you want to like covertly bring in, right? Um, like that's like the that's the libs of TikTok phenomenon. Oh, uh, you know, like you know, look at these look at these crazy people. Like, actually, uh, we need to like make it so that like you know, like gay people can't be in public anymore. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or we need to like uh, get rid of schools. <laughs> yeah, Lionel Terry isn't the thing. Not these days is not the thing you're being like pamphleteered on the street with so to speak it's kind of like the hard stuff that you get given once you've kind of been enmeshed in that world for long enough yeah the only people you get on the street of that are those guys with like little stand outside of comic-con and being like you're all the you're all fags and uh you're going to hell or whatever <laughs> you, you, you guys get those guys in new zealand uh not really anymore i mean you don't even get that many left-wing pamphleteers in the streets these days that's true I mean, I think it's all it's all paperless now, you know. 
Yeah. I mean, you, the US still has like a fairly sizable LaRouche cult, right? Don't those guys do like street pamphleteering in the bigger cities? I don't know. I, I haven't been to like a major city in a while, and I don't know how active the LaRouche people are these days. I know Australia still has a really small LaRouche cult. Which, now, I'm know, nice. Good for them keeping it alive. You know, I mean, I, I miss having guys like LaRouche. You know, like he had some good ideas, he had some bad ideas. You know, like there, there was, it's kind of like Alex Jones and that like, you know, there's once in a while, there's like a true thing mixed in with the crazy. <laughs> any, any other, um, so any other, uh, any other aspects of the guy's life that we haven't covered? Uh, is there no, anything that you wanted I'm, to, I mean, his life gets pretty boring after he gets arrested and right. his death sentence gets commuted. The one interesting thing is that he is sent to Littleton prison for a while and that's the time there's like a period of time there where he's in actual prison conditions rather mm. than the relative freedom by comparison he got in Seacliff. He made some like quite daring escapes from Seacliff Asylum that are like quite well documented in kind of local local folklore, partially because even when he got into old age, like into his sixties, he was extraordinarily fit. We're talking like a 10-mile run every morning at 6 a.m. well into his 60s, that sort of thing. But besides that, there's not that much more to say about him. Um, so, besides, thought... so besides the glow up, the exercise. Yeah, Ray, yeah good, uh, he... good, good for you, racist John Valjean. Nice job. Yeah, yeah. well, it's the standard of fitness he kept throughout most of his life, um, right up until he really started to really started to go not long before his death. Um, I think... One thing that could kind of be helpful is the situation with respect to Chinese immigration and other immigrants in New Zealand at the time that kind of made this level of of kind of pretty vile racism not only acceptable but quite popular. One anecdote I like to tell about this stuff is that the first kind of racial exclusion league was the Anti-Chinese League, which was formed mm-hmm. in 1857. At the time, and keep in mind that this group is formed in a pretty small city called Nelson, um, at the time, the only Chinese person living in New Zealand full stop was a guy named Apo Hockton, who jumped ship in Nelson four years earlier and was the only Chinese naturalized citizen of the entire country. Holy shit, so it was the anti-that guy league? Yeah, yeah, it was the Apo Hockton Exclusion League. Jesus. Um, that guy wound up having like a pretty good life and died in old age though. So that's, you know, good thing. later in life. Um, I imagine he probably did get hassled a fair bit because from the 1880s through to about the 1920s and he died in 1920, the scale of anti-immigrant policy as well as the degree of agitation increased quite a bit. And it, even though it was mostly focused at Chinese at one point, it would cost like a hundred pounds sterling a head per Chinese on a ship for them to arrive, and they were restricted. And this is always blows my mind. It's so insane. The number of Chinese per ship arriving in New Zealand was restricted based on a ratio of Chinese person to tonnage of ship. Whoa. <laughs> okay. That is so English and fucked up. That is so. It's so directly the value form seeping out of their DNA. Yeah. 
Yeah, capitalism really came from that place. Jesus Christ. Scientific racism is true, but only because for the British, like only for the English. <laughs> like they, they yeah. actually have MCM in their DNA mixed in with the rest. Like, like, yeah. Boy, good. Um, yeah. So, like, by the time you get to nineteen double O's, this stuff is just ingrained in the DNA of like policy making and the political culture of New Zealand. And it actually got more severe after after the murder. In 1920, there was an act which I don't think it was officially called it, but was generally just called the White New Zealand Act or the White New Zealand Policy. And after that, the White Australia Policy. Yeah, there. it's pretty similar. Named partially for a group called the White New Zealand League, which oh, okay. agitated for it and was in alliance with the Returned Services Association, so World War I veterans, which got normally would be a fairly radical... And this speaks to how much this stuff was ingrained, even in, like, radical labor, the, ra- the world of kind of, like, radical labor agitation. Normally, around this period, war vets, especially working-class war vets, were, like, a fairly radical section of New Zealand society. Um, There was quite a bit of industrial unrest in the 20s, but it went hand in hand with this gut-deep abhorrence for non-white immigration to New Zealand. I mean, some of the legislation passed in the aftermath of World War I even targeted, like, Northern Europeans. um, We don't don't want no Scandinavians here. Yeah, there's a book from a year or two ago called Dead Letters, which is about... um, state surveillance of people's like communications during world war one and the decade or so after there's like a small anecdote of these like scandinavian people who are living in new zealand who are getting their letters read by um the state police because they couldn't distinguish between germans and scandinavians like the the official censor nice yeah the germans would be very happy to hear that yeah (laughs) but yeah i think it's worth keeping kind of like that context in mind when considering like terry's life and deeds because it was a world in which his ideas had like a ready audience but people kind of viewed him as having the right ideas but they're being kind of no point to them like hey we're already doing all of this stuff to exclude chinese from arriving so (laughs) you know the, the job's kind of done buddy well, I, I think I think what he was trying to do was to be like, all right, look, we're, we're all against the Chinese, but do you know why the Chinamen are here? It's because of the Jews, like, yeah. and just kind of you know direct it towards where it belongs, like, in a uh, a parasitic corruption narrative of individual agents causing the, yeah. the alien. And that's the other thing come. that I think is accidentally really prescient is that. It's it's proposing this conspiracy between specifically Jews and the Chinese against right. the white race, which is not mm. something that it's usually something like these days you'd think of as being kind of like a ah uh, the Jews are in alliance with the CCP, yeah, or something along <laughs> pretty avant. That's some pretty avant garde shit. But it's like the the internal logic to it, kind of inherently, is that the Jews are in league with the Qing Empire. Like, that's kind of inescapable. Um, So it's this weird prelude to 
really common conspiracies these days that when you take the anti-Semitic element out of it, part and parcel mainstream politics. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Like, uh, I can use this. I can use this as part of my dungus pivot, where it's like criticizing she is actually anti-Semitic. <laughs> God damn it, Jake! You're you're taking a turn. You're going down a dark arc. Wait, which fucking? If, if, what... if Red if Red Scare can get Peter Thiel money, we can get China money. All right. You know we what? Can get, we can get some of that digital yuan. I provisionally support it. Okay. Like <laughs> as as long as long as I get you drawn swamp side NFTs so we can milk Twitter tears. Um, Jake, yeah. what did Lyndon LaRouche say that you find defensible or interesting? He had some good ideas. He had some bad. You're pulling a total. Apparently, I don't know. Apparently, uh, awesome left com grandpa Lauren Goldner. Uh, if you ask him about economics, apparently still recommends LaRouche's La- La book on economics. Um, uh, well, just um, Inter- Intercontinental Railroad. Intercontinental Railroad. Yeah, I think he wanted like a railroad system that spanned the Western Hemisphere. All right. That's off the top of my head. I'm not yeah. 100% sure if that was... I think, I As think a that, train I think guy, that... I can get on board with that and he, only that. Yeah. You had me at trains. Yeah. I guess, you know, fascists just take social democratic platforms. Yeah, he would have like some weird, like good ideas like that in, in the midst of other things where it's like uh, airborne HIV or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of why I was checking. I just want to make sure what we're dealing with here after uh, the various turns on this podcast and just, you know, I'm just yeah. watching my back. Yeah. I think there's probably one last thing that kind of revolves around the world of Lionel Terry in the shadow that I kind of wanted to bring up and that's I guess kind of a warning to like baby socialist types from the US that look at New Zealand Mm. and New Zealand's kind of social democratic achievements which I mean hey I'm not going to complain they've made my life better yeah it's easy for you to say but um like the social democratic tradition in New Zealand is so tightly entwined with this stuff that it's really hard to tease the two apart. Um, there's been like, you know, some pretty substantial improvements over the last sort of 30 to 40 years. Um, the last of the policies that kind of collectively get called the white New Zealand policy was finally like removed from legislation in the late 1980s. Um, even though it was like, by that point, it was a fairly minor, comparatively minor thing, um, but it was still on the books, and it wasn't removed until I think 1987. Um, so it's not like it's not like there's this inherent connection between xenophobia and social democracy. But like, if you've got a bunch of people who kind of look to New Zealand and especially look to the first Labour government's achievements, and also kind of like achievements before the first labor government came to power like the pensions act and um state arbitration of industrial disputes and things of those kinds then like you got to take your blinkers off when you look to new zealand and it goes back really far another kind of like a new zealand doom post or despair thing that i like to bring up to kind of like shatter people's illusions in new zealand being this kind of like quasi-socialist utopia is that um the first edition of the communist manifesto published in new zealand was published as a two-for-one with this essay penned by the guy 
who paid for its publication, and the essay is an anti-Chinese tract trying to get increased immigration immigration controls. Yeah, so I think of the world unite except for you. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, Yeah. no, yeah, I've I've seen slogans that are like "Workers of a World Unite for a White South Africa," stuff like that. Like, like, and um, in Australia, at least, a lot of the genocidal like aggression against the aboriginal peoples living on the continent there were carried out by the labor party and labor governments like is is the same true in new zealand well the thing is the in, in terms of armed conflict the last of the colonial wars here was finished by about the mid 1870s the first political party was only founded in 1890 that was the liberal party Um, which had a socialist wing and that socialist wing was very anti-chinese it's actually specifically the socialist wing of the liberal party that introduced a lot of the legislation that kind of drew a lot of people's attention to new zealand in terms of kind of like quote-unquote left-wing reforms in the 1890s and initially put forward new zealand as this kind of this kind of like experimental petri dish for social democratic reform but it's 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 the same people but when it comes to when it comes to the armed conflict side of it it was over by the time sort of party politics had come into being in new zealand there were attempts when the labor party was finally formed to kind of link up with the maori political mm. organizations that existed and those okay. did bear fruit. So there is, I mean, it's, it's another thing that I think is kind of like people should be wary looking at New Zealand is you have people who were, for their time and place, very progressive on um, the issue of kind of like Maori land, Maori civil rights, and generally like the place of Maori in a settler society who were at the exact same time you know, at the very next sentence, viciously anti-immigrant. So you can wind up making some arguments that you think are kind of like progressive when it comes to, I guess, decolonial politics and in the same breath be reinforcing some like viciously racist anti-immigrant stuff at the same time, which is not to say that, you know, it's also true that being into decolonial politics or anything is inherently racist towards immigrants it's more like you've got to be aware of this stuff when you go when you go into it which is why like i think a lot of americans should have their kind of illusions about new zealand on right and left shattered because they kind of project a lot of stuff on us they can go in really bad directions if they don't actually learn the local context well you know i think i've, I've taken away a very important lesson here uh, and i just want to i just want to clear right now as God is my witness, this podcast will never be anti-Chinese. Yeah, we will be we will be pro-Chinese all the way, no matter what they do, no matter wow. what imperialist CIA lies are spread about China, you know, no matter what they say about Belt and Road about how it's starting debt traps, we will stand. <laughs> we will we will we are we are dedicated to exposing the lies and being anti-anti-Chinese every day. God, can you simp any harder? All right, not being anti-Chinese. I, we, all right, we've common ground there. No, I, okay. I actually, I, in, in earnestness, I do want to say, like, um, 
I mean, I think the thing is, you know, what's important to do is look to other places and be like, okay, hey, look, um, these people can have like a healthcare system that doesn't like, you know, have people like scared to use it, <laughs> you know, or uh, hey, you know, like this place, like the working class uh, through some level of organization was at least able to secure some level of better conditions for itself uh, where it has like a certain degree of livability and they can actually like take vacation. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think we have to, we have to, I mean, obviously we have to understand the context. Obviously there's specific uh, historical uh, uh, geopolitical situations that allowed Scandinavia to develop like the Nordic model or that allowed New Zealand to, you know, develop the social democratic reforms that it was able to attain. Uh, But I, I, that, we you have to you, at the same time you don't want to you know end up being like well yeah the Soviet unions they don't have homelessness or they don't have or they don't have any like well, maybe, actually they actually didn't they were just kind of enforced you have to have a house but like you know but it, it, you don't want to paint these places as, as utopias beyond the wall you know yeah and I I don't want people to like pretend New Zealand doesn't exist either like I think there's stuff to learn in New Zealand's experience both as a settler society and um, the social democratic experiment here. Um, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, I still think people should look here and try and draw lessons from it. Just, you know, do so without, um, kind of preconceived notions of what's going on here. So the, the next is a big... 1984 Norway utopia. The next big project you guys really got to do, and I'll support this hundred percent. You got to drive those like rich doomsday preppers to the sea, except for James uh, Cameron. He will be like that Chinese guy. He's cool. You leave, you leave that man the hell alone. <laughs> But the rest of those guys, Teal, all those people, you get, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta write like you gotta write the pamphlet of this for those guys, for the, those those specific immigrants. <laughs> after, into after, into into the sea. Yeah. Yeah. That's, no, I, I I can get behind driving all a, of the rich doomsday preppers away. They're you know they're buying up too much land around Queenstown. They're part of the reason why like housing is so expensive there. That's what I'm saying. Like, and I'm saying like James Cameron will be like that one Chinese guy who was allowed to stay because he was cool. <laughs> <laughs> he probably supports sending all those other people off. You know, those are the kind of people that are in in his movies are ruining Pandora. Yeah, yeah, that's a point. It's the yeah. it's the Peter Thiel Association is you know, that's where all of the money to mine um, unobtainium is coming from. Exactly. Well, Tyler, thanks so much for coming on again. It's always a pleasure. It's always a, it's always a, it's always fascinating to learn more about uh, this particular corner of the world that I'm like, honest, I don't know that much about. Uh, but what the history there is uh, is rich and fascinating and illustrative in ways that um, are always surprising. Yeah, and I, I feel like as Americans, um, we're settlers that are really bad at understanding other settler societies. I don't really know if there's any set of people that are really good at understanding societies but we're just like especially leftists looking for like places to idealize we have no idea what we're doing and um it's we don't but but we also don't know what we're doing here for the most part as well so like it's not just a numbness to your history but a numbness to sort of like nuanced problematic uh elements of just like occupying land generationally that you, you you can barely account for in everyday conversation yeah i mean why betide a uh, pale skin pakeha guy like me being the being the um 
the messenger for for all of the <laughs> all of the rich veins of uh, interesting stuff happening in this country. But I mean, if it gets people to look here a little bit more critically, then you know, I think my job's done. That's it for this time. Thanks again to Tyler for joining us and recommending this piece. At one point in the episode, I was explaining why I thought one of the better ideas was of Lyndon LaRouche. As we, of course, mentioned the economic text that is still recommended, apparently, by Lauren Gold to this day, I referred to the transcontinental rail system he advocated for, but I had the geography a little mixed up. I was under the impression that it was based in the Western Hemisphere, and it was actually supposed to be more based in Eurasia, with um, a connection across the land bridge between North America and uh, Northern Asia. Uh, It was going to be a high-speed maglev uh, uh, railway system, which is an idea that I'm still in favor for. And while we're at it, a couple of other ideas, uh, they were fixated on fusion energy, uh, which I do think is worth investing into researching, uh, as well as Mars colonization and, on a more basic level, just the restoration of the Glass-Steagall Act. Which is, you know, for a group that is consistently, rightfully painted as crazy, I think a pretty pretty reasonable reform to ask for. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. Um, give our Patreon if you want to support the show. And, uh, yeah, that's it. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.